what if I got 100 John Henrys? What if I enlisted the community of artists, which Nyack is chock full of? Welcome to Littoral, a podcast from the literary shores of the Hudson, part of the River River Writers Circle, a nonprofit arts organization in New York. Find us online at riverriver.org. I'm so pleased to be joined today by artist and writer and activist Bill Batson. Bill has published a sketch and short essay about the village of Nyack every Tuesday since 2011 on nyacknewsandviews.com. His family has been in Nyack, New York since the 1890s. Bill serves as the marketing manager for the Nyack Chamber of Commerce and is the artist in residence at the Nyack Farmers Market, where he sells and makes art, organizes events, and develops promotional tools for the chamber. Bill is an advisor to the Nyack Center, a trustee of the Historical Society of the Nyacks, and the chair of the Nyack Commemoration Committee, a group that erected a Toni Morrison Society bench by the Road Monument in Nyack's Memorial Park in 2015. Bill chairs the Press and Publicity Committee for the Nyack branch of the NAACP. From his Nyack Sketchlog column, The Flash Sketch Mob, a crowdsourced, en plein air landscape art project, and the Nyack Record Shop project have emerged. A lifelong artist and activist, Bill is dedicated to using the arts to promote preservation, commemoration, cultural education, and community empowerment. To learn more, follow his weekly column or visit BillBatsonArts.com. And you're also on Instagram and Facebook. That's right, yep. Yeah. Nyack Sketchlog. I know you so much through the Nyack Sketchlog. I think that's where I first encountered your work, you know, seeing seeing your posts and, you know, just ever, you know, before I ever met you. I don't even remember when we met. Do you remember? Mm, it was probably, I guess, you, I, I profiled you for the local arts index. The, it was before River River. Yeah, so I, I was aware of your, your writing and your photography. Okay. Yeah. Nyack's a small town. Yeah, there is that too. Packed with <laughs> artists. If you spill a cup of coffee, it's going to land on an artist. That's true. That's true. Well, I thought we could start with you just reading a piece from one of your sketch logs. So, so you're on volume two of the Nyack sketch log publications. And I remember the, the launch party for this. Yeah, beautiful, yeah, that was great. Beautiful book. I... Uh, Started in on August twenty third, twenty eleven, and uh, this August I celebrated my eighth anniversary of posting. I've posted basically every week, so I created a list of four hundred entries. I've created two volumes of compilations, and this is the first one. And what I'm going to read is the first essay I wrote. It explains. The, the imperative uh, of the project, what I initially was out to accomplish. The column is based around an image that I draw, a sketch, and a log entry, a short essay. So the drawing here that I'm showing David and Anu is of a very humble two-story building when I first started, and the essay will address this, I would sit in front of the objects that I drew, giving myself about an hour or two. I also had a three-strike rule. If I didn't like the first effort, I could go to a second effort. If I didn't like the second effort, I can go to a third, and then stuck with what I ended up with. Finish this drawing, and uh, I'm glad to have it as a memento of, of um, the homes on Liberty Street. So the essay is called uh, Liberty Street. This house and this street are remnants of Nyack's oldest middle-class black neighborhood. In the early 20th century, a group of African-American families bought homes in Nyack. Home ownership by blacks in Nyack was a stunning achievement when you consider the fact that merely 50 years earlier, blacks owned nothing, blacks were owned. The speed of this reversal in fortune is hard to comprehend. In historic terms, 50 years is a tiny interval. 50 years ago was 1961. Imagine a family advancing from slavery to home ownership 
in the time span that America went from black and white TV to digital cable. My 60s reference is purposefully ironic. It was a time of urban renewal, a phenomenon of that era that destroyed the middle class black community that many refer to as Jackson Avenue. Almost obliterated, that is, except for this house on Liberty Street. My great-grandparents purchased the house on Jackson Avenue. My grandmother used the meager sum that she got through the condemnation process of eminent domain, the eminent domain debacle, to buy another home. The only saving grace is that this site now holds much-needed affordable housing and a senior citizen development. As I sat on the ground in front of this modest structure, and drew, a, and drew, a parking uh, enforcement officer walked toward me. I asked him if he was going to ticket me for squatting in a parking space. He laughed and said it was, if that was the case, he would have written me up weeks ago, having seen me numerous times perched on the curbside drawing. I think he chose this moment to say hello because he approved of my subject matter. It turned out that he knew my aunt, who was once the deputy village clerk and who grew up on Jackson Avenue. I was then approached by a local artist who told me that she admires but avoids representational drawings. She's an abstract painter, which I told her I envy. She lamented the demands of linear perspective, telling me how she would throw in the towel after the first line went astray. Watching my imprecise and quivering depiction, she thought aloud that if she could have forgiven herself the occasional errant mark, she would have seen the whole is greater than the sum of its imperfect parts. Because I draw freehand with black ink on white paper, I confront the fear of failure with every pen stroke. Yet I persist and complete each drawing, motivated by my attachment to the village and enriched by my random interactions with the villagers. That someone who loves Nyack and is making art would consider drawing from life after meeting me on this special site was invigorating. During this encounter, I could feel the freedom that my ancestors must have felt on this spot. As modest as this home appears, its very existence and hidden history is profound, and I am pleased to have archived it. The cartographers got this one right. Liberty Street is aptly named. Lovely. Thank you. I love the way that you've kind of worked in a little bit about your process of making the drawings and really accepting the way that errors are just part of the, you know, the beauty of, of what you're doing. So, and I do you want to say a little bit more about process too, and kind sure. of like just how that that place affected you? Well, the, the process is uh, something that kind of uh, follows you as an artist. Um, it, it's heightened when you're in plain air and, and outside, and hoping to accomplish something in a short amount of time. It's different than your studio, where you you know can decide when to begin and when to end and when to take a break. Um, what I found is that the uh, the errant marks sometimes that you become obsessed with are invisible to the rest of the world, and they just get stuck in your head. They're 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 part of your own inner narrative, but they don't really um, uh, exist to, to to the outside observer. Um, and then also sometimes, and I'm shifting back and forth between drawing and writing, but in writing. Um, if, if I'm preparing an essay for, for drawing, um, I'll have a, a turn of phrase or, 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 or a um, reference that I'm really, really in love with and f um, impressed with and want to preserve and present to the world. But then all of a sudden, I'll realize that the only way to finish the piece is to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. It just does not fit. It's okay. for something else, for, for another project. So I have to, so the, so the things that I sometimes love disappear and the things that I really aren't, I'm not happy with stay and, 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 uh, and, and live on. So, um, but, but these, these things, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, there's something that you become accustomed to and, 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 and uh, resolve uh, or, or work through as an artist, but often I guess they have, um, they have meaning as a metaphor too for, for living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems to me too, like because I've I've had that experience in writing too, in which I have this this kind of delightful idea or phrase or something that's just I love it, and then I end up removing it later. But it it's it creates a space like a 
um, you know, uh, like you've, you've, you've made this area for all of the other things to come into kind of safely, I think. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes it inspired everything else that came after. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the point of view of the artist. That what I've noticed with how people react with my work is that I'm the worst judge of my work by far. The pieces that I am absolutely smitten by are often not really received as I imagined they would be. Mm -hmm. And pieces that I'm kind of not at all interested in and maybe even slightly embarrassed by are extremely well received. So maybe that should be the test. <laughs> if I don't like it, it's good. Oh, well, you know, it's good. That, that's a terrible phrase we yeah. never use. It's it good works. Because <laughs> or, it works. Or it works. I don't yeah, know. it works. I think that's very, very, very subjective. But certainly you want to reach a lot of people and, and you have with these books. Um, you know, and I think just the way that you're educating all of us about the history, especially of um, you know the f black families that were able to really you know establish themselves after slavery. Um, I didn't know any of that history, mm -hmm. and um, it's really it's really important for all of us. Well, Nyack is unique in that regard. A lot of times, you know, population movements um, are constant. Um, if you look at a community and you do the demographics in, well, communities in America, we're a relative teenage country and compared to other places in the world. But if you look at the demographics of a town in 1600 and 1700 and 1800 and 1900 and 2000 and compare them, there'll be huge shifts, but there's a consistency in Nyack, which is, uh, uh, in Rockland County as well, which is, I think, um, extraordinary and, and I, and to some extent, inexplicable because the same forces that move people in other places in the world exist here, like, you know, economics and, and um, uh, social pressures and prejudices and um, you know, opportunities and changes in transportation and system and bridges come and bridges go and roads are built and, you know, so, so sometimes people are overwhelmed by, you know, immigration patterns. But Nyack has always had a, a decent-sized African-American community and then Rockland County has had a Native American community, which has dwindled, uh, but is, is always here. So. Um, when you can look at two or three or four hundred years of presence, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. And when, when you have, you know, the itinerant nature of communities or when you have diasporas, it becomes tougher to, to nail down stories because they're just fragments and pockets of people and they don't really collect artifacts and collect stories. But in Nyack, there is that, the possibility of looking back, you know, many years. So my family came to Nyack, my, my uh, father's family came to Nyack in around 1800. I'm sorry, 1880. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know that, I think the, the house that's in the, um, in the book, the, the one that you drew, I think it's on the market right now. Oh. I, think it's, I think I saw a realtor sign yeah, in front yeah, of it. Yeah, it has, it's been. It's one of those. Well, the, well, so here's an interesting connection then about African American history. So. When I first started um, presenting my work for sale, I created some prints, and, and one of the prints was at that house, and I hung it on on, on um, a kind of a clothesline um, at my booth at the uh, street fair across the street from Pickwick Bookshop, and um, a woman came by and stared at it and came over and said. I used to play in Nintendo in the room of that window she pointed to and I said, oh my God, so you should definitely have one of these. So she, she, she got one and mm -hmm. she introduced herself and her name is Dr. Lori Martin. Mm. So Dr. Lori Martin is a graduate of Nyack High School and she is a sociologist but she writes history and she, uh, uh, she, she saved from obscurity a figure named Cynthia Hesdra, who um, 
was an African-American woman who lived in, in, in Nyack in the um, early uh, 19th century and who, who was significant in many ways. One of the most important one is that she was a known or she was a rumored, it's hard to factually identify these things, but she was a rumored participant in the Underground Railroad. African-American woman who died with about $200,000 um, uh, a state of $200,000, which was a little over a million in, in comparative dollars. And, um, and, and the story of Cynthia Hesdra has been, um, I think, a fascinating one. And it, it was part of what brought the Toni Morrison Society to Nyack. And I, I just met her because I put up a drawing of the house where she, uh, where she grew up. Or she, she, her, it wasn't her house, but it was a family friend's mm -hmm. house. Yeah. Yeah, like you were saying, it's a small town full of yeah. interesting artists. But you have to put. But if yeah. you put up a flagpole, you're more likely to <laughs> to, to re you can reach almost everyone who has some kind yeah. of, uh, yeah. allegiance to it. I loved that event, the the Bench by the Road project, because that's actually that's when I learned about Cynthia Hesdra because mm -hmm. she was an important part. I think she was the one who was honored. Yeah, the bench is dedicated to her memory. Yeah. So that was her property there, just by the brook? She owned a parcel on one side of the brook, and on the other side of the brook uh, was the a parcel owned by the Tout family. And in some of the uh, newspapers of that time, and some of the early, some of the books of uh, uh, Rockland County history from that period, the Touts and the Hesdras were described as known Underground Railroad conductors. The um, brook was thought of as a navigation route or landmark. Uh, the stops on the Underground Railroad, as they're reconstructed by historians, go from Jersey City to Nyack to Newburgh, and they basically spaced them the distance that a person could walk at night. It's about 19 miles mm -hmm. walking through the night and then resting in the daytime. Um, there were all these other criteria. There was a, a historian from New Jersey named Giles uh, passed away, but he was uh, often approached by individuals that wanted to um, declare their property an underground railroad location, and he created a, a list of criteria to determine if one if a property is or is, isn't. Um, and uh, you know there was. It was a clandestine operation. You, if you were known, then you, the people who were trying to escape with your assistance would be captured and hauled back into the, 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 um, you know, the, 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 the despair of slavery, and then you would be personally, um, you know, liable legally and probably civilly too. So um, one of the things that they determined was that the house had to be built before 1963. The um, neighborhood had to have um, some kind of um, rumor of Underground Railroad activity. Um, there had to be a substantial African-American population because if, you were in a, if there were no uh, black people on the sidewalks or the streets, you would stand out. So you had to be able to hide in plain sight. Um, and uh, there had to be some kind of documentation that there was... Um, Underground Railroad activity; those are some of the, some of the criteria. So Nyack, um, you know, fit a lot of those, a lot of those. And there also the presence of the African American um, Amy Zion Church mm -hmm. was important too. The Amy Zion Church was founded by um, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, and Harry Tubman. Okay. So it was basically a front organization for the Underground Railroad. So you can almost find in most of the communities where there was, you know. Uh, uh, history of that activity, there's an AME Zion church. Okay. And we have one up here, which is my family church, AME's uh, St. Okay. Phillips on North Mellon, which mm -hmm. is actually one of my favorite drawings too, because the drawing mm -hmm. came out, this was when I was still drawing outside, and um, I draw on the curb for convenience, but I also think that I'm recreating a village that I came to know as a small child. I, I didn't grow up in that, I grew up in Bergen County down the road, but I would come up on weekends as a kid. And when I came back to take care of my elderly father, 
I was reacquainting myself with the village and I found that the, the view of it from the curb was a little bit more familiar because that's the way that kids tend to see the world, kind of down looking up. So uh, when I draw structures from that view, they tend to have this kind of immensity to them, the scale. It's like the ant view or the infant view. But then this one to me looks a bit like the front of a ship or like, or train, or there's just something about the way the perspective came out. It looks like this vessel that's kind of moving forward, and I imagine inside there are... Yeah, well, I think you're saying train. There's a, there's a picket fence that you've drawn here, so I think just kind of like the, the feeling of railroad ties, yep. too, yep. in front of the, the place. It's got that pattern. Yeah. And yeah. The, 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 the church is kind of like a ship with precious cargo inside. Yeah. But I love what you're saying about kind of the, the nostalgic feeling of like sitting on the curb and having that feeling of being a five-year-old <laughs> looking and, and drawing that. You know, that's so much of the sweetness of what comes into poetry or art is, is that. Um, well, we're talking so much about local history. Um, I wish, would you like to say just a little bit about um, the Nyack Record Shop project mm -hmm. and um, yeah, why don't we talk sure, about that one? Sure. Well, I was approached by the um, Edward Hopper um, Museum and Study Center. Uh, Ellen Jaffe, the assemblywoman for this district, um, developed some funds or, or, or was successful in creating this thing called the Edward Hopper Citation. So an artist is picked and given a stipend and then they have three exhibits throughout the state and to honor the legacy of Edward Hopper. And the first person picked for that distinction was a photographer named Carrie Mae Weems. And uh, the work that they were going to show of hers was from something called the Beacon Project. So I did some research and I saw that she had uh, taken um, uh, kind of an office space or she had taken up residence in a record shop and used that um, venue to invite members of the African-American community in to be interviewed. And she collected these interviews. And um, she took the material and created a set of photographs of her very... Um, very kind of um, iconic work with her is a, a figure, um, not really, almost like an archetypal figure. It's, it's, she's almost a, a, just a, a human scale in these photographs. And um, she was looking at gentrification and how a community that was industrial and welcomed an African-American community and created job opportunities and had housing was suddenly um, transforming into a place that was less friendly and less affordable. And some of those issues were kind of uh, here, they were parallel, uh, parallel reality here in Nyack. Uh, so I felt like it was um, a good uh, paradigm to have um, as, as a project. So we also had a record shop, an African-American community, pressures of gentrification. So we decided to um, do a kind of homage to her and collect um, material uh, from the African American community in terms of, uh, in, in the form of these these recordings. Um, we collected them and then just sh did a show of the photographs of the individuals who were um, interviewed. We didn't create a new piece of work, um, but we felt that kind of honoring her it was. Uh, you know her artistic creation, a continuation of the Beacon Project, so it didn't really have to create new, new work. And um, we also chose to launch the project on Martin Luther King's birthday. And the reason we did that is um, we felt as though in a lot of communities where there's African American, um, pr you know, presence, it's not always reflected in the uh, documentation that you'd find in libraries. Like if you went into a local history room. In Nyack, even though I said that there's been a kind of leveling of the demographic um, you know, size of the community, it's not, it doesn't reflect the collections of the material. So that if it's 25% of the population, 
maybe it's only 10% or less of the collections. And then with oral histories, it, it was even a lower number. So we, we tended to uh, reverse that. So now, I'm sure it, it won't stay forever, but African-American oral histories are overrepresented. Oh, no. uh, there were about like 35% of the oral history collections in the Nyack Library. Um, and, and we chose to do that on Martin Luther King's birthday because um, there's this great event in, in Nyack at the um, Pilgrim Baptist Church where the, the entire, every year, the entire, you know, 300 seats are filled. And um, even though towns can be diverse, they might celebrate diversity, but they don't always engage it. So you'll have parallel lives of, of different communities, but they don't really intersect. Well, this is one morning when they really do. So you have an incredibly diverse room. And if you think about the logic of the assassination of Dr. King, it wasn't really simply to silence a person, it was an effort to silence a people. So we felt like having an oral history project on his birthday was very uh, appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. And do you have a favorite story or a couple of stories that came out of those oral histories that you could tell us about? Yeah, there were, there were two or three. There was, um, well, I remember when the, there was a proposal a couple of years ago to have a skate park and my knee-jerk reaction was that it was a kind of like, you know, middle-class European-American amenity. Um, but one of the people who stepped forward was an African-American skateboarder who was really one of the first um, uh, to not only bring the sport to Nyack, but he was one of the first um, nationally to be known. So. Um, that was a phenomenal thing to, to learn about and to hear his story about, about skateboarding in the 70s and going you know, national and, and, uh, and also his excitement about um, having uh, the, uh, the park built. Um, another woman spoke about um, being a sharecropper um, as a child and you know, earning pennies for day's work and um, that felt like it condensed time that um, you know you normally think about um, certain things in history as you know miles away and decades away but this kind of just condensed that space and um, and then we did have a incredible story um, by a vet who um, was captured and escaped from the North Vietnamese during the Korean War and that was an interesting recording because uh, like a lot of folks who've been through trauma, there was both a need and a reluctance to talk about it. Um, the reluctance was the immediate re re resurgence of those feelings and, and that state of mind of, of, of fear and helplessness almost like um, form of a PTSD where you're not just talking about it, you're reliving it. Mm -hmm. So there's a reluctance to do that. But then this particular story involved one person who got away and two people who didn't. Yeah. So there was this desire to kind of honor their stories and to mm -hmm. talk about it. And then it was very fascinating too how the person described how different war is and how personal and and um, and and you couldn't escape the humanity of both parties in a conflict whereas now they talked about how distant and technological and yeah. and and inhumane war has become yeah so if someone wanted to um, you know go check out these um, these oral histories would they just SoundCloud, Nyack, Nyack Record Shop Project. Oh, okay. It's on SoundCloud. Yeah. That's great. Um, I think we'll link that on the recording. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the Nyack Sketch Mob, which you know I also heard about. I think maybe that was the first time that I heard of you and, and your projects. Can you say a little bit about where that, that project came from? What inspired it and kind of where it went? 
So when I first um, started my project, I thought about the contours of the neighborhood and that it was a mile square village. And um, I was in town to take care of my father, so I was in a kind of um, transition from kind of full-time work to full-time caretaker. So I had some time on my hands and I thought, um, okay, I'm going to single-handedly draw a landscape portrait of this entire village. Uh, so a, a year in, which is substantial and creating a drawing a week, I realized the folly in that. <laughs> And, um, it's good to be ambitious, you know? Well, <laughs> like, just take out like, the whole pineapple, like just every single spike and line. And well, that was my goal. All, yeah, get all the juice. That was my goal. <laughs> and uh, I realized that um, I'd bitten off more, more pineapple than I could chew. So I realized also that um, there was a model for this, though. So you could make an effort to do something like Herculean like that, or let's say the model I came up with, the John Henry model. So John Henry did go up against the steam-powered drill, and then in my mind, my adversary wasn't the steam-powered drill, but it was the, the periscope car of the Google map um, machine. They were, at that time, going around. So oftentimes, if I wanted to return to a, a location, and finish a drawing and I hadn't had a picture or I needed a different angle, you can, on Google, look up an address and there is a photograph of it. But I was offended at the fact that the memory of that place was going to be this kind of randomly poorly lit, poorly taken photograph. So I was thinking, okay, we can create a Google map. Well, I can create a Google, hand-drawn Google map of Nyack so that you could pick it, point any, put in any address and find a hand-drawn representation, but one person can't do it. You know, uh, John, I'm John Henry. I would, if I tried, I would just maybe collapse and and wouldn't really even have um, something truly impressive left over. But what if I got a hundred John Henrys? What if I enlisted the community of artists, which Nyack is chock full of? So I put out an invitation, and on. Um, on a, a Saturday in June in 2012, a little over 100 artists joined me and um, I gave out assignments. We stood 12 paces apart for, I think, almost a mile stretch of, uh, of not quite a mile, but from Cedar Hill Avenue in Nyack to 2nd Avenue and on both sides of the street and people would, would have that as their coordinate and I gave everyone um, a rough size for their work so that I could scan the work and everyone had two hours and we rang the bell well we, we yelled um, Vinny Vitty Sketchy <laughs> I came I saw I sketched to start and then we rang the Nyack Center bell at the end after two hours and everybody returned with the drawings and we scanned them and that night we had the slideshow. I wanted to be, I wanted to have it in, in real time. So it was a complete shared experience from everyone out together drawing to seeing the work. And it was, it was an incredible um, representation of a village and of a group of people. And um, I was surprised that as folks would see the slides, the um, oohs and the ahs were often more pronounced for some of the younger artists, the, the, the kids and the amateur artists. And, and even though everyone you know, did great work, um, it really held up as, as, as a document. There wasn't really a, it felt kind of seamless. And I, I felt it was almost like um, a, a piece of um, uh, kind of crowdsourced um, or, 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 or group cubism, because each piece was, was of a different perspective of the same thing, and yet kind of held together as a work. Mm -hmm. Crowd cubism. Yeah, that, that's great. Crowd cubism. <laughs> yeah, I could see it. So kind of like, you know, you get like, um, almost like a grasshopper's eye. Exactly. Sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And they all line up, the edges line up, but 
every every uh, section is is radically different, mm -hmm. but it forms a whole. Yeah, and then the other thing I felt about it is that, um, so in terms of my feeling about a place from an organizer's point of view, um, it's almost like if you, um, you know, the, the artist is a, a person who observes. Um, no matter what you end up sharing, it's inevitably based on an observation or experience. And um, this, the, sketch the, the flash sketch mob project felt like that it was a way of examining a place, an, an intense examination. You know, the premise in, in the first essay where I called for flash sketch mob was that the unexamined place is not worth living in. And that if people do take the time to observe in, in hyper detail the, the built and natural environment, that it better prepares them to be zealous defenders of where they live. Mm -hmm. It allows you to appreciate the, the beauty of it, the, the, the flaws of or, or appreciate the beauty, address the flaws, um, you know, uh, to, uh, explore the history. There are plaques that are in our periphery that we pass every day, that if we just stopped and read them, we would say, oh my God, the first woman that ever voted in Rockland County lived in this house, which begs so many questions like, you know, women weren't allowed to vote? We assume that that's understood, but we know that because we were taught that, but that's not regularly taught. And then, wow, well, how did it come that she was the first one? And she must have been, extra, you know, what was her life like? And um, the woman who I'm talking about, Natalie Couch, is, was in one of the houses that we drew for the Flash Sketch Mob. And um, she was also, I think, one of the first women to graduate from law at Fordham College and University. And so these, these um, a lot of incredible facts are hiding in plain sight and um, plain air sight. So being out there and drawing, and then doing it not just as an art project, but doing it as a community project. So I was adamant that there would not be a bar of participation. That there, and, and we pitched it that way. I, I really tried to make everyone feel comfortable in coming out. So one of the best things to see was family groups. So there was one family where there was a, a grandchild, a parent and a grandparent sitting together and drawing three different views of, of one building. I love that. You know, and I think it's, it's so, um, you know, what you're saying too about just the process, the creative um, process creates that sort of attention and that kind of appreciation. It's, you know, it's, it's one thing to um, to look at a drawing that someone else has done or, you know, to learn in school, you know, what's, what's gone on, but to actually, you know, physically participate in observing and, and creating something is, is such a, you know, it creates something very strong in a community. Um, I'd love to have an app where you could, uh, so we did a second one. Um, they're very time consuming and they're, I haven't, wanted to really kind of monetize them. I don't want there to be any, as I said, bars for entry. So um, I've been going to art supply stores and trying to get someone to, to, to sponsor more of them. But um, the, uh, the, the, the long-term goal would be to have a, um, uh, an app that would be a Google map grid of, of a community where um, some of the addresses have been rendered by artists and then you could upload so you could just say well I, you know, I drew this so you can go into the site and upload it and then there'd be no reason not to have multiple versions so you could go to a, 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 you know if you were looking let's say at the the Nike Boat Club where we are you would punch in Nike Boat Club and there'd be six different 
filters of that one place, or six different you know, visions of that one place, so people can continue to add to that. And the, the, the interesting thing, too, is that eventually, I think people would begin to broadly interpret what it means to come and sketch or and experience a place. So um, some people were using you know, pen and paper, and some people were using digital devices to, to do the, the work, and then one person actually submitted a poem mm -hmm. that day. Diana Wilkins. Oh, that's lovely. <coughs> yeah, I think I've seen that done with poetry. Maybe not, um, you know. Well, I think I think there are kind of like tours, tour apps where you know you go to a place and, and there is a poem that, or something that you experience in the app. Well, you, you do you do flash poetry. Yes, we do, <laughs> but it's it's a little bit different. You know, it's it's really you know we we do invite people to write the poems themselves, mm -hmm. but it's it's really you know more um, an engagement of you know we're kind of gathering their impressions mm -hmm. and then making something for them mm -hmm. in return. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I think our our writing circles are a little bit more in in the frame of um, what you know some of some of what you're trying to get people to do, which is to stop and, and reflect and really observe. And, and there's a kind of focused attention that happens mm. that creates that sort of appreciation of the place and the people that you're with. So, yeah. Have you um, uh, posted those those slides? Oh, yeah. The, um, those are also available online? Yeah, both, both the 2012 uh, flash mob and the 2015 flash mob are online as slideshows with the soundtrack and um, and I've done one recently with a elementary school which was exciting the Liberty um, elementary school out in Valley Cottage the fifth grade as a part of their um, farewell to the school uh, all came out and uh, and chanted Vinny Vidi Sketchy and mm -hmm. surrounded the school. The, the 75 members of the fifth grade class made a perfect ring around the school. And uh, each drew for an hour and then I came back um, a couple of uh, weeks later and showed, or a week later actually, and showed the slideshow and it was a wonderful mm -hmm. thing, every drawing. And that's the interesting thing too. I mean, I do believe that art is, is, is a craft and a calling and, and it, it's a discipline and, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a profession and it, it needs to be studied and preserved, but it's also something that everybody does, like in the same way that everyone writes. I mean, you know, you have to form words and make marks, but some people write professionally and some people pursue it as an art form, but when Everybody's given the space to feel um, supported in doing it, and uh, and I think actually when everybody's doing it, there's something about the process of engaging a large group of people in a simultaneous art activity that creates a bit of a hive mind, I think, and that everyone's given permission to do it, and so not no one is singled out as the Expert. It's 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 a it's something that everyone's given the same two things: a piece of paper and a and a, a pen um, or colored pencils in this case. And what I've always been amazed is that I know that some people will identify themselves as artists, and some people have more of a facility to it. But I've been trying to figure out with younger people how much time to give them. So we figured a, a class and your normal elementary school is, you know, 40 minutes, 30 minutes. So this is a special event. We've taken everybody outside, so we go a little longer. We give them an hour. And I'm always worried that if it really isn't embraced by some of the participants, you'll have some people making noise and distracting other people. But it's amazing. Everybody wants the whole hour. And everybody submits a drawing. I often th worry that I'm going to have 75 kids and I'll get 
70 or 69 or some people will say, oh, I don't like it. I don't Everyone wants to be a part of it. They want to, it's, it's like this collective perspective activity where everyone's perspective is equally valid. So um, it's, it's been an exciting thing to see develop and I'd like to uh, find more scenarios and more places to, to draw. I was hoping that we could get some of the uh, boats around involved when the bridge was being done. I thought it would be cool to have oh. boats on either side of the bridge and draw it. But oh, to draw the bridge. That was oh, a lot of uh, <laughs> logistics. And I, yeah. I was worried their insurance <laughs> might become a question. And then also, if it's a choppy day, yeah, trying to get people it might be kind of hard to keep your pen on the page. <laughs> paper yeah well, I like you know just what you're saying just about the way that everybody wants to participate once once they arrive I think that's that's also the mark of a good you know teaching artist is that you know you you kind of share some some of your passion some of your joy of the process you know kind of sometimes it's like I, I think it's a little bit of a subconscious thing when I watch teaching artists do what they do like there's there's some kind of transfer that happens mm -hmm. to the people that you're teaching that you know suddenly they 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 get the excitement about this sort of attention and and then seeing what everybody else is is producing and the kind of generosity that they you know kind of fold over everybody around them mm -hmm. that's that's doing the same thing you know because otherwise it's true the arts can be a very competitive field mm -hmm. um, and you know that's that's part of the the torture I think that we go through sometimes as professional artists. But um, well, there's also the, the, the I think we often overlook the therapeutic aspect of art. You know, it's almost like um, people find horrible things to medicate themselves with, like drugs and food and television. But a lot of people. That I know who make art, there's, they're putting themselves through a, a remedy and, and, and uh, they're working things out in their heads and in their psyches. And, and uh, I did this project where um, I was the art coordinator for the New York City Housing Authority. And we uh, were given an opportunity to spend a bunch of money. Sometimes mm -hmm. in government, that yeah. is something that you do. And, you, you hope that people who are making the decision are going to use good judgment. So we, we were asked how to get a lot of kids and no, a lot of residents in public housing to make art. How would you do it? So we thought about the visiting artist model and they're great artists in New York City, but there are 63 housing developments and you know, uh, at that point there's 700,000 residents and we didn't have the budget to do that. But we did have staff in all those facilities, so I came up with this project where we would send them to a mini art school, the staff. I knew they weren't artists, and I didn't know if they wanted to make art, but that was the premise and it got funded, so we had to try to do it. So we had a building in Manhattan called the Harborview Art Center, and it's still running. I did this, started in 1985 or 86. Um, I think the guy, yeah, Wiley Lucero might still be there. And um, we, we kind of figured out, we'd give people three bites at the apple. We would um, show them how to make them, like a mask, and then we'd have them make it. And then we would give them an instruction manual on how to make it, and then we would send them a kit with all of the materials that you need to make it. So we figured if we did that three times, that, that it would become a bit of a, of a habit and an easier uh, exercise to, to, to conduct in front of the, 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 the residents. And it, you know, the results were kind of um, a little bit all over the place, like you'd expect with any subjective kind of art form. But what was the most amazing thing about it was the school part, the actual coming to do the classes. The, these were folks that were dealing with all kinds of difficult situations and scenarios and the, the kids that they dealt with and the adults were many of them in, in real serious need and they were dealing with 
you know, occasional, you know, issues of, of like, you know, real despair and, and distress and, and, and sometimes communities that were unfortunately, you know, um, you know, dangerous and, and, and hard, hard living, hard, hard circumstances. So when they came into class, I thought they would just be like, what on earth were you people thinking? We have real need. Why are you giving us crayons? It was the exact opposite. At the end of the session, nobody wanted to put down their crayon. People felt that they were getting something out of making it, doing the making themselves. And, um, and I often find that the time and the world that we live in that I can cope best is when I'm in the zone, mm -hmm. when I'm making something. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, but in the middle of it, um, when you kind of lose track of time and uh, you don't know if it's going quickly or going slowly and you lose track of where you are and you lose track of when you are mm -hmm. um, and uh, you, 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 uh, you, I find it a very powerful place that you want to return to and it's sometimes hard, you know. It's, it's, uh, that's an ideal moment. Like for me, it's hard to find the time to, to get in the zone. But I think that with these projects like the Flash Sketch Mob, we suddenly introduce a group of people to the zone. Because mm -hmm. in the middle of that, that half hour point, right in the middle, I think they're on this incredible journey and they would want to keep going if, if we said, I mean, some of them will keep going, obviously, an hour's probably yeah. enough. <laughs> No, but I think, um, you know, just what you're saying about kind of refreshing that collective consciousness is, is so important. I mean, that's really, I think, the vocation of the artist to, you know, to provide that, that space to get into the zone and then, and then come back out and, and be stronger and have, you know, having received a kind of wisdom, too, within that space. So and normally you do it alone. I, that's the interesting thing, too, because the zone for me is the yeah. studio. And it's early in the morning. So to do it with a group, and that's why I, I imagine what you've experienced in your writer circles. Exactly. Exactly. So um, are you, you know, you mentioned Edward Hopper a, a couple of times. Is he a big influence on you? Or um, can you speak a little bit about, you know, who your, maybe you consider your main influences in, um, in the visual arts, but also writing? Well, I think, um, for, for writing, it would be more kind of columnists. Like, I grew up in New York reading like Juan Gonzalez and Jimmy Breslin and um, uh, 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 Jack Newfield. And they were kind of political reporters, but they loved language and storytelling. And they were, you know, kind of, um, you know, deadline driven every week. You're twice a week. You would um, need to reveal something new to you know, readership about the world that we live in. So, so there, there were folks that kind of inspired me. Um, Upton Sinclair, The Jungle book, uh, was powerful to me because it was not only an incredible portrait of life, but um, it had an impact. It had, uh, I think, a lot to do with the creation of the food, the FDA, when he exposed what was actually going into the slaughterhouses and what people were eating for for their meals, um, so uh, so that would be some of the writing end, um, and uh, I think um, for art, I uh, have always been representational. I've wanted to. I, there was that conversation, the, the my first essay, where I said I envied the abstract artist, and the abstract artist envied me as a representational artist. Um, but one of the first, it just so happens that one of the first museums I ever went to was the Whitney, and one of the first paintings that I ever truly sat with for any significant time was Edward Hopper's early, early, uh, early Sunday morning. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it had, it had an impact. Um, it, it, uh, I think <laughs> it had an impact because it was familiar to me. Um, he, as I said, used composites, so it was... Uh, Sometimes he would use an element from one drawing and a, a landscape from another, 
So folks often think that that painting was about Nyack, but it, I think it was Seventh Avenue in the city. Um, but what he brought from Nyack was the, the, the brick, the color of the brownstone, and the quality of light. So it really does look like, in my mind, Nyack, that painting. And um, I also have a photograph of my father from around that era standing in front of storefronts that look a little bit like that that um, vista. So, um, so that painting kind of you know, had a big impact on me and then I got to know his work more. But then when you come to Nyack, he, he's a, a figure that looms large in, in, on the landscape. And as a matter of fact, when I um, started to, uh, when I moved back to Nyack, I had been um, an art student. I'd been making art most of my life, but I had been on a very, very long hiatus and um, uh, there was a, a creation of a, the 40th anniversary of the Hopper House happened around the time I came up here. And a, an artist, Chris Burns, had created a, um, this, this series of events called Hopper Happens. And I had this drawing that I did, or this collage that I did, which was of, of the, um, the Hopper painting with the photograph of my father. And um, I, I, I learned that they were going to have um, a slideshow uh, on the side of a building. Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, that would be very cool to do. So I, I got a picture of the, the artwork and um, I shared it with, with Chris. And I think it was just seeing, I'd never seen my work projected on such a large surface. And it was really, um, I was like smitten by it. Yeah, I was, great. it was like, <laughs> I, it, I was, it was the bug that bit me. I mm -hmm. was all in. So, um, so I, I've been, I've probably been drawing. I probably created like a, draw, you know, drawing, a couple drawings a month ever since then, and then for a couple of years, a drawing a week ever since then. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, and then, and then for me also in the work that I've done of the 400 essays that I've done, well, I'm sorry, the 400 posts, probably around 300 essays, because I do repeat. Um, some of the more interesting ones have been about Hopper. You know, I wrote about um, a painting he did in um, Havistra of, of, of a building that, um, it's called House by the Railroad, and uh, Alfred Hitchcock and his art directors saw the painting and used it for the creation of the film Psycho, but not only the the art direction and not only the um, the the, the uh, 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 visuals of, of the film, but also the the inner drama or the inner narrative or the the or the, 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 the stories of alienation of a place because of decisions that have um, no real. Uh, that the parties who live there have no control over. Um, in, in the House by the Railroad, his paintings are often very bucolic and um, very Americanish, and the, the figures, the human figures that are, are, are the, the, the objects and the buildings are almost as much characters in the image as the people, and then the people are often singular and isolated and alienated. Um, and in this painting, there are no people, but the building looks like it's been displaced and interrupted. And there's this, this, this slash of a line across the bottom of the picture plane, which are railroad tracks. But in the story of how this area developed, the, 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 the fate of, of a place would rise and fall depending on where, where train tracks were built and where train stations were located. And um, Havistra was cut in half by the, the railroad, but the more important rail station was in Nyack. So the fate of that community was determined by the advent of this new technology, the railroad. Now, um, the um, uh, situation psycho was the, the highway system. There was a prosperous hotel, the Bates Hotel, that was doing really, motel was doing very well. But then the 
county or the state built a railroad, I mean, I'm sorry, built a, uh, a highway, and um, they didn't get an off-ramp. They didn't get a, an exit. The exit was way down the road. So suddenly this kind of affluent family fell into uh, hard times and um, drove uh, you know, the younger Bates crazy. So, um, so when you look at the, the um, House by the Railroad and you look at the, uh, the, 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 the Bates Mansion, which is behind the Bates Hotel or Motel in the movie, you can see that they literally took the shape of the Hopper painting. So I, I wrote about that. I've written about the, the resurgence of Hopper as a, as a figure in, in American painting. I think at the Tate in London, their biggest audience generators are Picasso's number one and Edward Hopper's number two. When they have a Hopper exhibit, more people, I don't know if it's a kind of exposure to his, his work or there's a, a kind of a description of modernity that he's captured that people relate to. Um, I know that uh, his painting uh, Nighthawks, which is this kind of group of people around uh, a, a cafeteria or a, a kind of coffee shop at night has been, you know, referenced and, and reimagined with Marilyn Monroe and Humphrey Bogart. But there was a, a a group called Art in the Streets that did this um, survey of Americans to determine what is your favorite painter. Um, and I was, uh, you know, happy that it wasn't, um, you know, Benjamin Moore. Because I figured that I didn't know if everyone could name a painter. And uh, it turned out that Edward Hopper's um, Nighthawks is the, the most popular painting in America. Really? By our own Edward Hopper, the artist. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very fascinated by him and his, his, his work and his, his moods, and his, uh, his, his, his um, influence, how he's influenced many people. He's influenced me. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> it's really something. I know there's, um, I think Mark Strand has written, or you know, he did a book um, kind of responding to a lot of Hopper's paintings. And, um, you know, that's, in, in some ways, that's kind of how I know the painters, <laughs> is <laughs> if, the, if the poets, <laughs> um, you know, honored them in some way. Like the same thing with, um, uh, what's his name? Um, the, um, the the artist in Nyack who made the assemblages. The um, oh Joseph Cornell. Joseph Cornell, yeah, that's right. Because um, I, I learned about him too through a poem. There was a Charles Simic poem okay. about a very particular um, artwork of his, and um, and then I looked it up and and then I realized oh he lived in Nyack. Okay. <laughs> and, um, but it's. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to see what happens between the writing and what you discover. You know, I I remember that that column about the Hitchcock piece, the Hitchcock connection, and you know, it it seems um, you're very attuned to the poetics of place in that way, and you know, not just the poetics, but really kind of the storyline and the way that the storyline then inspires other storylines too. So. So I, I just feel, I feel so honored that we got to speak Thanks. this morning about um, no, creative process and, and your projects. So um, you mentioned that, um, I think we mentioned your website at the beginning, but um, tell us again, what, where can people sure. find you? Well, um, yes, yeah, so I, I have uh, been trying to post regularly on Instagram. It's a great it's almost like a you know you get to curate your own gallery of all the artists you love, so um, I, I I'm a, at Nyack Sketchlog, and I um, am also I have a, a site where if people want to, I, I create bags and mugs and hats with my Nyack images, so that's Nyack Gift, NyackGift.com, and I post uh, every. Tuesday on NyackNewsAndViews.com. So if people want to um, uh, see uh, what's up next, um, next Tuesday I'll be uh, hitting, hitting publish at 5 a.m. All right. 
And, and people can always stop by the Nye Farmer's That's Market. That's right. Yep, every, <laughs> every Thursday. Rain or shine. Yeah. I gotta keep up with the farmers. They, we're, we're, we're proud that in Nyack, art and culture is a part of a balanced diet. Agreed. Come and get Agreed. some art and some <laughs> vegetables and some honey. Yeah, wonderful. It's a good okay. meal. It is a good meal. It's <laughs> no pineapple. It's just yeah, no pineapple. But you know, you get nourished all the same. There you go. <laughs> so thank you so much, um, and thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Littoral, the audio sister of our online journal River River, where you can also find out about upcoming writing salons, readings and local literary events at riverriver.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of Littoral. Our 2019 reading series was supported by our state and local arts funding agencies. Rockland Decentralization Project Grants are made possible with funds from the Decentralization Program, DEC, a re-grant program of the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature and administered by Arts Westchester.